Uh, you may not be aware. If you're not aware, I'm not sure how you're not aware. But Great Britain coronated a new regent yesterday. You might have heard of that. After 70 years under the reign of Queen Elizabeth, the United Kingdom now gives allegiance to and serves King Charles III. Pretty dapper looking guy, don't you think? Elizabeth was particularly loved by Great Britons, at least it seemed that way from way over here in Texas. And as well loved as she was, at least for a season, it seemed that Charles was that unloved. Many, even in Great Britain, said he should not be king and certainly not head of the Anglican Church because of his many well-known infidelities. So now, with a new king coronated yesterday, they must be wondering just what kind of leadership King Charles will provide. Will he be a kind king, a, a king sensitive to their needs? Will he provide good leadership and will he work well with Parliament those are not uncommon questions when a new king or a new leader takes over a country. There's always speculation about the kind of leadership that he will provide and whether it will be beneficial to the country, whether he will have the interests of his people first and foremost in his mind. So it was even for the nation of Israel as she contemplated her Messiah. What would he be like? What would his nature be like? What kind of person would he be? What kind of things would he do? What kind of accomplishments would he bring? How would he benefit the nation of Israel? And so it is also as the world anticipates one final great king. Just what will he be like? It is that question that Zechariah 9 answers in two very well-known verses. If you haven't Open your copy of the scriptures yet. Open up to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah is the next to the last of the minor prophets right before the beginning of the New Testament. So if you can find the Gospels, go back to Matthew and then just turn back four or five pages and you will be in Zechariah 9. Zechariah chapter 9. In Zechariah chapter 9, last week we recognized that God one day is going to bring His wrath against the nations. And particularly, He identifies in this chapter that He will bring His wrath against the nations to the north of Israel, Syria and Assyria, uh, to Tyre, to Sidon, to the Philistines, and others as well are implicated he will pour out his wrath. But even in the pouring out of his wrath, verses 7 and 8 remind us that there is even opportunity for redemption among the nations. That even though the nations are rebels against God, that they are opposed to the nation that God has chosen to be his own particular nation, yet there is still an opportunity for salvation. And the question is, how is it that those nations will be saved? And, and how is it that the nation of Israel will be saved? And so in verses 9 and 10, Zechariah produces or introduces to us the nature of the character of the king, the Messiah that is coming. And he, he advocates that the nation ought to have a particular response to him. Let me read verses 9 and 10 for you. Again, following uh, the introduction of God's wrath against the nations, he says in verse 9, Rejoice greatly! O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, 
O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and he, his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In these two verses, he not only introduces us to the nature of the Messiah, but he calls the nation to a particular response to that king, the Messiah that is coming, a response that is appropriate for us as well, simply said, rejoice. The king is coming. The key verb in these two verses is that verb rejoice. And it's parallel in the following line, shout or shout in triumph. He calls Israel even Even though the king isn't there yet, he calls them to rejoice because of the certainty of the king's coming. And then he gives two reasons that Israel and we can rejoice. The king's character and the king's conquest. Now yesterday, Charles was coronated king of England. And he was crowned king for one simple reason. He was in the right place at the right time. There was no ethical or moral ability that made him to stand above everybody else that made everybody say, oh, it's a slam dunk. He needs to be the king because he is far and away the most righteous in the land. He just happened to be born in the right place to the right person at the right time. And that made him king. Jesus Christ also has a birthright to the kingship of the world. But even more than that, he has every right and every attribute and every character and every action to be the king. He is an appropriate king for the world for all time. Rejoice. God's king is coming. And... The reason that we are to rejoice is because of the character of the king, the character of the king. I've already noted verses 7 and 8, God makes clear that there is redemption that is going to be possible for the nations. And the question is, how are the nations going to be redeemed and and how will Israel be redeemed? And, And the nations and Israel will be redeemed through the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah that is promised in verse 9. And because of that Messiah who is coming as king, not just of Israel, but over all of the earth, Zechariah, God, through the pen of Zechariah, calls the nation to rejoice. Notice what he says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. He calls Israel, it's a command to rejoice. That word rejoice has several different emphases. It means something like to shout in exaltation. It means 
to shout with allegiance. So think about your favorite sporting event and your allegiance to the team that you're there to support and the shouts that you give for that team. That's that kind of shout. I, I am committed to this one who is the king. He is my king and I delight in him. It is also a shout of, of exclamation over his total triumph. We find, in fact, the same verse used, same word used in chapter 10, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 10. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. We find something similar in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph. O Israel, rejoice and exult with all of your heart, O daughter of, Zion, of Jerusalem, for the Lord has taken his judgments against, taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away all of your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord Yahweh, is in your midst, and you will fear disaster no more. No more disaster. The King is on his throne. Shout for joy. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's not, it's not optional. It's a demand that the nation would respond with joy. And it is, it is a call for joy in a conquering king. Now think about it. If a king comes in to take over a land, most of the time, there's not joy. In fact, 200 years later, when much of the opening verses of this chapter would be fulfilled through Alexander and he would um, lay waste to those other nations that were surrounding the nation of Israel, there was no joy in those nations. There was lament and sorrow and grieving. There was verse 5, fear, writhing, great pain. But when this king comes... There's no fear, there's no lament, there's no suffering, there's joy, there's peace, there's contentment. And specifically, he is calling the nation of Israel to repent, to rejoice. He says, rejoice greatly, he identifies who is to rejoice, O daughter of Zion. In the parallel phrase, he says, O daughter of Jerusalem. And so we understand from that that when he says Zion, remember Zion can mean a def- number of different things. It can refer to the temple or the temple mount of Jerusalem. Uh, it can refer to Jerusalem itself. Sometimes it can refer to the nation. And certainly here, because of the way he puts those two phrases in parallel, daughter of Zion and daughter of Jerusalem. He means us to understand the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The king is coming to reign on his throne in Jerusalem and they should give joy. Again, why should the nation rejoice? Notice what he says, because your king is coming to you. That little word, behold, in the beginning of the third line is an often overlooked word. It's a, it's a word that sometimes isn't even translated by English translations. It is in this particular instance. It's, it's simply the verb for see. And it means something like watch, look, pay attention. It's a marker that says give attention to this. Oh, brothers and sisters, he is saying to the nation of Israel, give attention to the fact that your king is 
coming. Who is this king? Well, all through this passage, we've seen reference to the Lord, and it refers to uh, the, 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 the Father within the triune Godhead. So we saw that in verse 4. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her, dispossess Tyre, uh, the, the, the sovereign, Adonai, uh, the Lord, the majestic on high. He will dispossess her. And so all through this passage, the opening verses, we've seen references to uh, Yahweh, the Godhead, the the, the, the promise-making God of Israel, and specifically in this chapter, we've seen reference to the Lord, Adonai, the Father, who will dispossess the nations. And notice he makes a distinction as he speaks in verse 9 about himself and the king who is coming. So the one who is speaking is Adonai, and then he says, verse 9, your king is coming to you, he is just. And if it is God the Father who is positioning himself as king, he would say, Behold, I am coming to you, and I am just. And he doesn't do that. He is pointing to one who is like him, but different than him. In fact, we'll see again in verse 10, and I'll draw attention to this when we get there. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. There the Lord Adonai is speaking. And then middle of the verse, he... This king will speak peace to the nations. So the king in verses 9 and 10 is not Adonai who's speaking. It's another king. Another king who is like him. Another king who is vice-regent with God, with the Lord. It is, it is God incarnate himself. We know that from other passages, though this passage is non-specific about that. Notice as well. And we know that as well, particularly because Jesus claims that when he enters Jerusalem, right? He says, this is now being fulfilled. Notice as well what he says, what God says about this king. Your king is coming to you. He's your king. He's Israel's king. He's the king that is for Israel. He is, he is the king that is working for Israel's good. He is not a Gentile king like Alexander, who would come in and domineer. But he is a king who is from Israel and for Israel and for Israel's salvation. Israel's not waiting for a Gentile liberator or even an internal political powerhouse. She is waiting for her Messiah, and he is coming. Notice he says that again. Your king is coming. There's certainty in that. His coming cannot be denied. His coming cannot be restrained. And both Matthew and John demonstrate that Jesus' triumphal entry fulfilled this promise. Christ came as a, a child born of a virgin, lived his 30 plus years on earth, demonstrating his righteousness, fulfilling all righteousness that is within the law. And then he walked into Jerusalem on that donkey, affirming that this prophecy had been fulfilled. He has come in peace, declaring peace, providing peace. The king is coming. And notice as well, he says, he is coming to you. That is, he is coming to Israel. He's coming to a people that have covenant, been covenanted with God, and he is coming to a place, a land. But it doesn't just mean location and people. It also means benefit. He is coming to you, for you, 
for your benefit, for your prospering. He is coming to you to care for you. Notice that while the king had not come at the time of Zechariah, in fact, he would not come for several hundred more years after Zechariah said this, he still commanded them, Rejoice. Your king is coming. It was a reminder to the Israelites that they didn't need to see the king yet to rejoice. It was enough that God made the promise. When God said, my king is coming for you to care for you, that was a guarantee and a certainty that could produce joy in them. The follower of God can rejoice in God's promises even when we don't have them yet. Why? Because all of His promises are sure. We can rejoice because He has promised. And that's enough. We can rejoice when living under corrupt rulers because we know the final King is coming eternally and he's going to fix it not just some of it all of it forever is there injustice in the world just a tad bit and it's all going to be cared for resolved reconciled fixed by the king who's coming we can rejoice even under corrupt rulers, because we know the king is coming. It's been promised. We can rejoice as well, brothers and sisters, while living under hard and sorrowful circumstances. Not just political circumstances, but just the stuff of life. We can rejoice because the king is coming and he will fix all of your personal ills as well. You can depend on him. He's a good king a benevolent king, a kind king who always cares for those who are underneath him. You can trust him. We can rejoice in all circumstances because of the nature of the coming king. And what is that king like? He identifies in the remainder of verse 9 four characteristics of the king. The king is righteous. The king is righteous. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just. When he says he is just, he means that the king has the attribute of righteousness. He is unlike the kings of the nations. Remember verse 2? Hamath, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they're very wise, yet they will be destroyed by the coming king. They've piled up silver like dust, verse 3, and gold like the mire of the streets, and the Lord will dispossess her. She's, she's put an emphasis on money and finances and position and power and authority. And she's not cared for those who are underneath her. This king is a just king, and he will care with righteousness. There would be another king who would come in, and destroy Tyre and Sidon and the others that were mentioned in those opening verses. 
It was Alexander. Says one commentator about Alexander. The Grecian Alexander came in to break down and destroy. And the righteous Messiah comes in to save and redeem. The earthly king came with pomp and pride. The Lord from heaven came riding upon a lowly donkey. When God says that the king that is coming is righteous, he is describing his character. What's he like? He will always do what is right. He will never make a decision that is wrong. He will never make a decision that will harm. He will always do what is right. He's describing his character and he is describing his reign, what he is like. He is just and he only does what is just. And brothers and sisters, that means he's trustworthy. You don't have to see all of the details of the end. You just have to know he's just. I can trust him. He's faithful. And the justice of this king is the fulfillment of the promise that was made to David. David, there will be a king who will sit on your throne forever and ever. And he will be a just king. But even more than that, this is a fulfillment of a promise that was made to Jacob way back in Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis 49, as Jacob is giving his blessings to his sons right before he dies... He says of his son Judah, verse 10, Genesis 49, 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There will be a ruler that will come through Judah, and he will be a just and righteous ruler. It was promised to Jacob. And it was reaffirmed again to David. It was reaffirmed through Zechariah. And it was affirmed at the coming of Christ into Jerusalem. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have a just, righteous, fair king. The world has never known a king like this. Every earthly king, every earthly ruler is unjust in some way. Some of them are horribly unjust. They serve themselves and they do not serve their people. And that can be said of every ruler. In some way, they're serving self and not their people. This king will always do what is right for his people and will always act rightly against unrighteousness. He will rule with equity in all things and at all times. This king is righteous. What else is he like? This king is saving Again, middle of verse 9, he is just and he is endowed with salvation. That word salvation can have a couple of different emphases. It can mean either something like he is one who has salvation or one having salvation. Or it can mean something like he is manifesting himself as savior. And both of those are true about this king. But this particular form when it's used in the Old Testament, is always used in the sense of having salvation. And so the emphasis here is on the fact that he is endowed with salvation or he is clothed with salvation. He wears salvation as a mantle, as it were. 
and it points to his victorious nature as a king. He is a saving king, a, a, a king who by nature does salvation, who brings salvation. Ever hear of a king like that? And you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It is the nature of the king to be concerned with the troubles and the inabilities of his people and always come to their rescue. That's what Paul says to the Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 speaking about Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us. That's saving language, salvation language so that he might rescue us from this present evil age According to the will of our God and Father, to Him be the glory forevermore. He came to save. These two ideas, His righteousness and His salvation, won't come together in any earthly king. In earthly kings, their justice might tempt them to be harsh, overly just, as it were. Bitter against those who are unjust. Their salvation, their bringing of salvation and hope might tempt them to be self-serving. But the justice and salvation of the Messianic King combine to make a uniquely compassionate God. There is no one else like this King who comes with justice and salvation. He is also a humble King. The Messiah is humble. He is in direct contrast to secular kings. Whether kings or presidents or senators or judges or governors or mayors or councilmen, I am hard-pressed to think of any governmental authority who is universally proclaimed as humble. I mean, think about it. Think about all those who are in political leadership over us and is the defining characteristic humble. And watch their TV ads and see what you think. Then again, maybe there is one out there. I've only been following the political process for 50 years, so maybe there is someone who is a humble king. I don't know. But this king is a humble king. He is, verse 9, humble. The word humble can refer to his poverty. He's financially poor. It can reflect an idea that he is suffering. He's humble in that he is afflicted. And while the Messiah is not poor in either a physical or spiritual sense, that is the manner in which he presents himself with that kind of humility. You're familiar with this. Isaiah says this about our humble king Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord, the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the Messiah, grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form, no majesty, that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised. He was forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. It's Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. You're familiar with that. Jesus himself affirmed his humility. Matthew chapter 11, 
He says, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Though he is the eternal and infinite Lord, he does not lord his position over his people. You can go to him and you will find gentleness and humility and kindness and tenderness for all of your ills and for all of your problems. He humbly served. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And brothers and sisters, He continues to serve. He is humble. What a contrast to Alexander the Great who would fulfill the promises of one verses 1 to 6. What a contrast to the King of Tyre and Satan who empowered the King of Tyre and their lack of humility. Here we have a humble, gracious, gentle king. And think about how this king is being described to us. The humility of the king, the humility of the Messiah is in exceeding contradiction to what the hearers might expect at this point. The king will be righteous. Well, yes, of course. The king will be a savior. Yes. The king will be humble. What? What a juxtaposition of what was expected of the one who would arrive in victory and vanquish his enemies. Such is the uniqueness and glory of Israel's king and of our king. There's a fourth characteristic of the king. It's given to us at the end of verse 9. The king is peaceable. The king is peaceable. He is humble. And he is mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In those two lines, we have a parallel structure. So when he says he is mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, he's talking about the same animal. He's, he's riding in on one animal. He means us to understand he's coming in on a donkey. The king is arriving at his throne in his city on a donkey. Now, That wasn't unheard of, even in Scripture. Judges give several instances of it. Second Samuel gives several instances of it as well. Kings, even in Israel, rode on donkeys. And we have secular understanding of it as well, that even in the ancient world, sometimes kings rode on donkeys. What is significant about the king riding on a donkey, though, is that when a king rode on a donkey, he was asserting that he was coming in peace. One of the most significant implements of war of that day and time was a war horse. The horses were were seen to be um, symbols of power and authority and might and strength. And when you saw a king on a horse, he was coming to vanquish the people that he was coming into. When he came on a war horse, he was coming to defeat. When he was coming on a horse, he was coming to wage war. This one is not coming to wage war. He is coming in peace and humility. When our Savior 
rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That was his testimony. I'm coming in peace to provide peace. He had needed no army to position him as the Messiah and King of Israel. He could come in on a donkey and accomplish all of his purposes. Again, for Zechariah, as he writes these lines that he hears from the lips of God, that this king is coming humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt. For him, that prophecy was still future. But for us, we look back and we say, that's, that's been fulfilled. At least in part, it's been fulfilled. Christ promised peace. He rode into Jerusalem on the donkey of peace on the Sunday of the Passion Week, declaring, I'm the king. This passage has been fulfilled. You, you were promised a king who would come, that would rule and reign with peace for all of eternity. I'm here. And the city did what Zechariah said to do. Rejoice! Hosanna! The Messiah's here! And five days later, they killed him. There was a rejoicing in the one who was coming as the king that turned into a rejection. And so he went to the cross and he was resurrected to secure spiritual peace for those who believe in him. And there's coming a second time when this king will come to secure a final eternal peace as the Davidic king. And he will do so through a conquest. So we're going to see that in just a moment in verse 10. A moment of war by the king will lead to an eternity of peace. But before we get to verse 10, let's not overlook the rejection of the king who is coming to give peace by the nation as they saw him ride into the city. That rejection serves as a warning to us as well. Beware of rejoicing and then rejecting. Beware of saying, oh yeah, Jesus is great. Will you follow? Uh, I don't know. Brother, that's rejection. Friend, that's turning away. Don't say, oh, Jesus is everything, and then act as if he is nothing. Don't reject him. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I urge you, I compel you, your only hope for peace personally and nationally, worldwide, is for you to trust in Christ as your Savior. He's your only hope. He was the only hope of Israel, and he's the only hope of you and me. If you haven't believed, I urge you, turn away from those things that you are trusting for your salvation and turn away from your sin and turn to Him and embrace Him and follow after Him. He is your only hope for peace. As with Israel, we are called to rejoice in the character of the King. There's another reason we can rejoice in God and that is because of the conquest of the King the conquest of the king. Verse 9 reveals the character of Christ. It reveals the character of Christ at his first advent. Verse 10 reveals the conquest of the coming king and his actions at the second advent. And what will he do? He will provide peace. The king will 
provide peace. Verse 9, the king rides in on a donkey. Verse 10, he rides in on a war horse. It's implied at the beginning, the first three lines, I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim. That's the ten northern tribes of Israel and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. That is, there will be a vanquishing of all battles, a vanquishing of all wars, all oppressors over the nation of Israel will be, the nation will be freed from. They will be eliminated. He says twice, I will cut them off. They will be terminated. They will come to an end. All instruments of war will be transformed so that peace will prevail not only among the people, but among all of creation. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 11. You're familiar with this. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them and the cow and the bear will graze and the, the young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den and they will not hurt and will not destroy in all my mountain for the Earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All battle will cease. My 10-pound cat, if it will exist in the kingdom, and I don't think he will. He's a great cat, but there's a lot of depravity in him. (laughs) He will not walk by the 80-pound dog and reach up and bat it in the nose. Go, Jack. It's our cat. How stupid are you? The dog will take you out. And there he is, combative. Bap. And in case the dog moved, it comes again. Bap. I saw him do it like Thursday. Ridiculous cat. Brothers and sisters, all cut off. I mean, that's a silly illustration. But don't you look at the nation sometimes and go, how foolish are you? What do you think you're doing? And God says, I will cut it all off. Did you notice something here as well? God is speaking and he says, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot. That's distinct from he who is coming as the king. So the Father is speaking, though it is clear from the book of Revelation that this is accomplished through the Son. So the Father does it, but He does it in conjunction with the Son who will come in all righteousness on His war horse. Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness... There's his character. He judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That's his salvation. And his name is called the Word of God. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet and and the mark of the beast and all those who received the mark of the beast and 
those who worship his image, and all the rest, verse 21, were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. How did he kill? With the sword that came from out of his mouth. What's that? It's the word of God. He spoke and they died. He wages war with a simple word and he vanquishes the nations. Now notice that this is going to be accomplished for all of Israel throughout Israel. From Ephraim, that's the north, that's the ten northern tribes, all the way down south into Jerusalem, into the capital of Judah, capital of the nation. It's a unified nation again. No more ten tribes, two tribes. It's one nation of Israel under God. And all of it will experience peace from God and His Son. The King will provide peace. Secondly, the King will speak peace And he, now again, there's a shift. So the father has been speaking, beginning of verse 10, and now he speaks of the one who will come as the Messiah, and he will speak peace to the nations. To speak peace means that he will command peace, and he will enforce peace. He will bring about peace with a single word of authority. Can he do that? Yeah, we just saw it in Revelation 19, but we've already seen it in the Gospels as well. Remember Jesus in the boat with the disciples and he's at the bottom, he's taking a rest. I mean, it's been a full day, a busy day. He has a physical body just like the other disciples. He needs some physical rest. So he's at the bottom of the boat taking a rest while they're rowing away. I mean, it seems reasonable and, and rational. Except the storm blows up and he keeps sleeping. Why? He's the king of the universe. He's not worried about the storm. The disciples are petrified and they go and wake him up. Don't you care that we're, dis- we're dying? What, this? Hush. Be still. Dead calm. From raging torrent to dead calm. And with that, Jesus manifests all creation is subject to him. And it's a picture that everything is subject to him. Is it going to be hard for Jesus to speak a word and declare, let there be peace? (laughs) No. He's going to come and he's going to speak peace and he will accomplish peace. And notice, verse 10, that God promises this king will speak peace to the nations. The first part of the verse, the first three lines are peace to Israel. And now we see peace to Israel to the world. It's an invitation for all to come to Him for salvation. It's a reminder that God is a missionary God who delights in the salvation of the ungodly. It's a reminder that the nations coming to Him is an important theme within the book of Zechariah. We've seen this numerous times. Chapter 2, verse 11. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people chapter 8 
We saw this recently, verse 22. So many peoples and many nations, excuse me, mighty nations will come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of one Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Chapter 9, verse 7. I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth speaking about their false worship and they will be a remnant for our God, such a remnant that they will be like a clan in Judah. They're going to be part of me. This is God's redemptive plan. He brings peace, not just to Israel, but to the nations. Oh, brothers and sisters, the Messiah is the Prince of Peace who speaks peace and he will provide peace eternally notice what he says the last two lines his dominion will be from sea to sea and there's been some debate among commentators which seas is he talking about all of them none of them are excluded he is lord from any sea to any other sea. There is no sea and no landmass between any of the seas over which he is not king, lord, and ruler. He owns all of it. And that's reemphasized in the final line. And from the river to the ends of the earth. The speculation is he's probably talking about the Euphrates River. That's a reasonable expectation. I think that's probably what he's doing, though it's not specified here. But that even goes beyond the point of what's going on here. Pick a river, any river, and go from there to the end of the earth, and it belongs to the king. It's all his. There is not one molecule of the universe, Abraham Kuyper said, over which the Lord does not say, Mine! It's all His. It all belongs to Him. He has infinite domain over an eternal kingdom. And when He comes as King, it's not just that He's over everything for a little while. It's not like He's got a four-year term or if He's a senator, a six-year term. No, no, no. He is the King eternal over an infinite dominion. When Jesus takes the seat on David's throne, there will never be again anyone who resists him, anyone who stands against him, anyone who acts in any evil way again. Only he will be king and he will be king forever. There is a popular philosophy in the world that says, if we just think about something long enough, hard enough, we can make it come true. We just need to visualize success. So if you're an athlete, just think about hitting the ball and you can hit it. Uh, I thought about it. Couldn't do it. Visualize wealth and you can become wealthy. Friends, that's nonsense. But I do have a vision for world peace that is different from what the world envisions. It is the advent of the Redeemer King on His throne. He came offering peace and He came and secured our spiritual peace with Him and He will again secure our final eternal peace with Him. And this is something that is 
affirmed all through the scriptures. Think about what the angel said to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bring forth a son and you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great and he'll be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, As in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. In the book of Revelation, then the seventh angel shouted, sounded and there were loud voices in the heavens saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned the nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. In Revelation 19, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and the sound of many thunderings saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. That's the Redeemer King. He has come. He is coming again. And that is why we can rejoice. Father, thank you for this reminder of the greatness of our Messiah tucked into this book that contains much, not just of the end times, but of your wrath and your righteous indignation against sin is this incredible picture of the character and the conquest of our King. And we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear our government We don't have to fear any other government. And we don't have to fear any other trial, any other difficulty, any other suffering because the King is coming. And He is righteous. And He is saving. And He is humble. And He is peaceable. And He will make all things right. We believe that and we rejoice in it. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.